a lot of music credits. Um, welcome back. This is Buddhist Books Podcast, episode 182. <clears throat> it's been a little while since we've done a special episode here on Buddhist Books. Um, for those who are new, who just tuned in, this is a good one to start with to get a flavor for what we do here. Um, now, normally, we're reading pre-sectarian early Buddhism, what's right behind me, the Tipitaka. Um, we've been at the beginning in the Vinaya Pitaka, the rules. And then every 10 episodes, on the episodes that end with zero, uh, we read a little bit of the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, which is more of a Tibetan Vajrayana thing. I mean, it is that specifically. And uh, then a couple of times when uh, my wife and I were in Bihar and when um, there was one other time when we reached 100 episodes, there was a special episode that both episodes focused on, uh, on Zen, on Japanese Zen specifically. Um, we read the, uh, the Master Dogen's commentary on the Heart Sutra in, uh, in Bodhgaya, which you can... You can see there if you want to. And then for the 100 episode, we read Fukan Zazengi, which you can also find here. And uh, then there was one time, one time that we uh, focused on Mahayana, and that was when I did the movie reaction to Sean Zahn. And uh, if you're interested in that, you can find that here. Um, so there's been a lack of Mahayana so far on this channel. Uh, we started reading the Lotus Sutra. That's a whole other story. Um, I won't go into right now, but suffice to say, as you probably already know from the title scroll, the title of the episode and so on and so forth today, I'm going to be reciting Suryangama Sutra. This is a little unorthodox because I'm going to be reciting volume eight. So you might have noticed uh, from the from the timestamp of the video um, that this is a little bit of a longer one. And you might be wondering, where can I find volumes one through seven? Well, aside from in this book and in various places on the internet, um, I haven't recorded it yet. I'm gonna get to it at some point in the future. And at that future date, maybe, I don't know, a decade from now, when we get down to this bottom shelf, um, then I will recite volumes one through seven and then put volume eight right there to cap it off and then move on to the next book in uh, the Buddhist bookshelf behind me. So what is this? Um, now, it was first published in China in 730 in Chinese, 730 Common Era. And people were suggesting that perhaps it was authored by a Chinese Buddhist, a Mahayana Buddhist, um, shortly before that time. And then someone came along and said, ah, but here it is in Sanskrit. Um, and then the Sanskrit version, I believe, is in a museum somewhere, but it hasn't been like, you know, analyzed and proven to be older than the Chinese version. So there's people who are skeptical and for whatever reason, maybe because of the content of, uh, of the sutra, um, 
you know, they want to say that it, it wasn't, it didn't come from India, it came from China. Either way, either way, it definitely did not come from the Tibitaka behind me. It didn't come from the 6th century before Common Era, you know, Buddhists. It didn't come from the mouth of Shakyamuni Buddha when he was alive. It is not an accurate uh, description of events that took place in his life. I think there are very few people who would debate with me on that. Feel free to comment below. Um, but as in many Mahayana sutras, it is written as though it were, uh, you know, a speech being given by Lord Buddha to the familiar disciples that we've all come to know from the Tipitaka. That's just kind of how, as far as I know, all, if not most, of the Mahayana sutras are written. So this takes place in that Mahayana universe um, at the end of Lord Buddha's life, or toward the end of his life, he's leaving the Lion Throne. Um, so I guess he's passing on the lineage, he's passing it on to someone else. And he's talking mostly to Ananda. Now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Ananda was the next to be the leader of the Sangha after Lord Buddha passed away. Um, if he wasn't the immediate successor, he was the successor after that. But I think he was the immediate successor. So it makes sense that Lord Buddha is talking to Ananda directly. And um, I, this sutra came into my life at an interesting time. Um, it was from a stranger on the internet whose real name I don't know. He used an alias. It was completely anonymous. Suggested that I read specifically volume 8 of Suryanthama Sutra as a warning. Uh, to remain humble in, uh, in the face of having had some personal experiences, of having had, to, to one degree or another, an awakening, um, and to realize that it's not the capital A awakening. It's not, you're not enlightened now. Sure, you've had one or two experiences and you have something to impart, but don't think that you're a sage. Here, read this. And I read it, and I loved it. And, uh, and then later, when I was researching and I found out, oh, well, there's some debate about whether it's, you know, Chinese or Indian, okay, uh, or exactly when it was around. One thing we know for sure is it was published in 730. How far before 730 it was written is, up, it is a matter of debate. Um, so that feeling I had of, wow, I love this sutra, and I felt like I was reading this is this is the words of the Lord Buddha, you know. Um, then finding out, oh, no, it probably wasn't, and it was written by, you know, a Chinese monk or something, you know. So I felt this uh, sort of disappointment that I think over about 10 years later, because this was 2011, 2021, um, was when I started... Uh, researching and, and uh, reading the, the Pali scriptures, the Pali canon, the, the Tibitaka, because I, I hungered for the authentic uh, telling of the life of the Lord Buddha. But over the couple of years that I've been focusing on it, I've come to feel more open to uh, texts and teachings that were written later by others even if they weren't sitting there with him in 6th century BC, even if it wasn't straight out of the mouth of Lord Buddha. Um, so while as a foundation here on this program, and thus, I mean, in my personal work, which I'm sharing with you by way of this program, 
Um, I'm focusing on Tipitaka with a, a little bit 10% focus on uh, Vajrayana, Tibetan Vajrayana, but I don't want to lose sight of Zen. By the way, this, um, this scripture, though it is Mahayana, in the ninth century, it was translated into Tibetan. So uh, in Tibetan Vajrayana, of course, they, they have the Tipitaka. They have oh, the Tipitaka. I'm not sure if they pronounce it with an R, but obviously it's been translated into Tibetan, as have many hundreds of, uh, if not more, of Mahayana scriptures. So this is among the canon of Mahayana scriptures that is uh, contained within Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. And this is a particularly special uh, sutra to Chan and uh, Zen. So while it would fall into the category of Mahayana, that doesn't exclude these other categories. It just excludes these categories here on the left side. It's not Theravadan and it's not uh, pre-sectarian early Buddhist. So there you have it. Um, I think that that's enough of an introduction. I don't want to bore everyone away before we get started. Now, this was um, something I recited on a podcast called the Esoteric Nerd Podcast in November of 2016. So that cuts, cuts down on the amount of work there is for me to do today. And uh, when, I, when I put it up on that podcast back then, I included all these, those musicians that you saw listed at the beginning of the episode if you're watching the video version. If you're hearing the audio only, then now you know there was a whole bunch of musicians listed at the beginning. Um, and so with that, I will, without further ado, get to the reading. This is Volume 8 of Suryangama Sutra. Suryangama Sutra, Volume 8 Spoken from above the crown of the great Buddha's head, and on the hidden basis of the Tathagata's myriad bodhisattva practices leading to their verification of ultimate truth. At that time, the Tathagata was preparing to leave the Dharma seat. From the lion throne, he extended his hand and placed it on a small table wrought of the seven precious things. But then he turned his body, which was the color of purple golden mountains, and leaned back, saying to everyone in the assembly and to Ananda, Those of you with more to learn, those enlightened by conditions, and those who are hearers have now turned your minds to pursue the attainment of the Supreme Bodhi, the unsurpassed, wonderful enlightenment. I have already taught you the true method of cultivation. You are still not aware of the subtle demonic events that can occur when you cultivate Shamatha and Vipassana. If you cannot recognize a demonic state when it appears, it is because the cleansing of your mind has not been proper. You will then be engulfed by deviant views. You may be troubled by a demon from your own skandhas, or a demon from the heavens, or you may be possessed by a ghost or spirit, or you may encounter a lee ghost or a may ghost. If 
your mind is not clear, you will mistake a thief for your own son. It is also possible to feel satisfied after a small accomplishment, like the unlearned bhiksu who reached the fourth dhyana and claimed that he had realized sagehood. When his celestial reward ended and the signs of decay appeared, he slandered our hotship as being subject to birth and death, and thus he fell into the Avicii hell. You should pay attention. I will now explain this for you in detail. Ananda stood up, with the others in the assembly who had more to learn, bowed joyfully. They quieted themselves in order to listen to the compassionate instruction. The Buddha told Ananda and the whole assembly, You should know that the twelve categories of beings in this world of outflows are endowed with a wonderfully bright, fundamental enlightenment, the enlightened, perfect substance of the mind, which is not different from that of the Buddhas of the Ten Directions. Due to the fault of false thinking and confusion about the truth, infatuation arises and makes your confusion all-pervasive. Consequently, an emptiness appears, worlds come into being as that confusion is ceaselessly transformed. Therefore, the lands that are not without outflows, as numerous as motes of dust throughout the ten directions, are all created as a result of confusion, dullness, and false thinking. You should know that the space created in your mind is like a wisp of cloud that dots the vast sky. How much smaller must all the worlds within that space be? If even one person among you finds the truth and returns to the source, then all of space in the ten directions is obliterated. How could the worlds within that space fail to be destroyed as well? When you cultivate dhyana and attain samadhi, your mind tallies with the minds of the bodhisattvas and the great arhats of the ten directions who are free of outflows, and you abide in a state of profound purity. All the kings of demons the ghosts and spirits, and the ordinary gods, see their palaces collapse for no apparent reason. The earth quakes, and all the creatures in the water, on the land and in the air, without exception, are frightened. Yet ordinary people, who are sunk in dim confusion, remain unaware of these changes. All these beings have five kinds of spiritual powers. They lack only freedom from outflows because they are still attached to worldly passions. How could they allow you to destroy their palaces? That is why the ghosts, spirits, celestial demons, sprites, and goblins come to disturb you when you are in samadhi. Although these demons possess tremendous Enmity, they are in the grip of their worldly passions, while you 
are within wonderful enlightenment. They cannot affect you any more than a blowing wind can affect light or a knife can cut through water. You are like boiling water, while the demons are like solid ice, which, in the presence of heat, soon melts away. Since they rely exclusively on spiritual powers, they are like mere guests. They can succeed in their destructiveness through your mind, which is the host of the five skandhas. If the host becomes confused, the guests will be able to do as they please. When you are in Dhyana, awakened, aware, and free of delusion, their demonic deeds can do nothing to you. As the skandhas dissolve, you enter the light. All those deviant hordes depend upon dark energy. Since light can destroy darkness, they would be destroyed if they drew near you. How could they dare linger and try to disrupt your Dhyana Samadhi? If you were not clear and aware, but were confused by the skandhas, then you, Ananda, would surely become one of the demons. You would turn into a demonic being. Your encounter with Batangi's daughter was a minor incident. She cast a spell on you to make you break the Buddha's moral precepts. Still, among the 80,000 modes of conduct, you violated only one precept. Because your mind was pure, all was not lost. This would be an attempt to completely destroy your precious enlightenment. Were it to succeed, you would likely become like the family of a senior government official who is suddenly exiled, his family wanders, bereft and alone, with no one to pity or rescue them. Ananda, you should know that as a cultivator sits in the Bodhimanda, he is doing away with all thoughts. When his thoughts come to an end, there will be nothing on his mind. This state of pure clarity will stay the same, whether in movement or stillness, in remembrance or forgetfulness. When he dwells in this space and enters Samadhi, he is like a person with a clear vision who finds himself in total darkness. Although his nature is wonderfully pure, his mind is not yet illuminated. This is the region of the form skanda. If his eyes become clear, then he will experience the ten directions as an open expanse, and the darkness will be gone. This is the end of the form skanda. He will then be able to transcend the turbidity of the kalpas. Contemplating the cause of the form skanda, one sees that false thoughts of solidity are its source. Ananda. At this point, as the person intently investigates that wondrous brightness, the four elements will no longer function together and soon the body will be able to transcend obstructions. This state is called the pure brightness merging into the environment. 
it is a temporary state in the course of cultivation and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, Ananda, as the person uses his mind to intently investigate that wondrous light, the light will pervade his body. Suddenly, he will be able to extract intestinal worms from his own body, yet his body will remain intact and unharmed. This state is called the pure light surging through one's physical body. It is a temporary state in the course of intensive practice, and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, as the person uses his mind to intently investigate inside and outside, his physical and spiritual souls, intellect, will, essence, and spirit will be able to interact with one another without affecting his body. They will take turns as hosts and guests. Then he may suddenly hear the Dharma being spoken in space, or perhaps he will hear esoteric truths being pronounced simultaneously throughout the Ten Directions. This state is called the essence and souls alternately separating and uniting, and the planting of good seeds. It is a temporary state, and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, when the person's mind becomes clear, unveiled, bright and penetrating, an internal light will shine forth and turn everything in the ten directions into the color of Jambu River gold. All the various species of beings will be transformed into Tathagatas. Suddenly, he will see Vairochana Buddha seated upon a platform of celestial light, surrounded by a thousand Buddhas who simultaneously appear upon lotus blossoms in a hundred million lands. This state is called the mind and soul being instilled with spiritual awareness. When he is investigated to the point of clarity, the light of his mind will shine upon all worlds. This is a temporary state and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, as the person uses his mind to intently investigate that wondrous light, he will contemplate without pause, restraining and subduing his mind so that it does not go to extremes. 
Suddenly, the space in the ten directions may take on the colors of the seven precious things, or the colors of a hundred precious things, which simultaneously pervade everywhere without hindering one another. The blues, yellows, reds, and whites will each be clearly apparent. This state is called excessively subduing the mind. It is a temporary state. And does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, as the person uses his mind to investigate with clear discernment until the pure light no longer disperses. He will suddenly be able to see various things appear in a dark room at night, just as if it were daytime, while the objects that were already in the room do not disappear. This state is called refining the mind and purifying the vision until one is able to see the dark. It is a temporary state and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, when his mind completely merges with emptiness, his four limbs will suddenly become like grass or wood, devoid of sensation, even when burned by fire or cut with a knife. The burning of fire will not make his limbs hot, and even when his flesh is cut, it will be like wood being witted. This state is called the merging of external states and the blending of the four elements into a uniform substance. It is a temporary state, and does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, when his mind accomplishes such purity that his skill in purifying the mind has reached its ultimate, he will suddenly see the earth, the mountains, and the rivers in the ten directions turn into Buddha lands, replete with the seven precious things, their light shining everywhere. He will also see Buddhas, Tathagatas, as many as the sands of the Ganges, filling all of space. He will also see pavilions and palaces that are resplendent and beautiful. He will see the hells below and the celestial palaces above, all without obstruction. This state is called the gradual transformation of concentrated thoughts of fondness and loathing. It does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, as the person uses his mind to investigate what is profound and far away, he will suddenly be able to see distant places in the middle of the night. 
he will see markets and community wells, streets and alleys, and relatives and friends, and he may hear their conversations. This state is called, having been suppressed to the utmost, the mind flies out and sees much that had been blocked from view. It does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then this will be a good state. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Further, as the person uses his mind to investigate to the utmost point, he may see a good and wise advisor whose body undergoes changes. Within a brief interval, various transformations will occur which cannot be explained. This state is called having an improper mind which is possessed by a Lee ghost or a May ghost or a celestial demon and without reason speaking Dharma that fathoms wondrous truths. It does not indicate sagehood. If he does not think he has become a sage, then the demonic formations will subside. But if he considers himself a sage, then he will be vulnerable to the demon's influence. Ananda, these ten states may occur in Dhyana as one's mental effort interacts with the form Skanda. Dull and confused living beings do not evaluate themselves. Encountering such situations, in their confusion, they fail to recognize them and say that they have become sages, thereby uttering a great lie. They will fall into the relentless hells. In the Dharma ending age, after the Tathagata enters Nirvana, all of you should rely on and proclaim this teaching. Do not let the demons of the heavens have their way. Offer protection so all can realize the unsurpassed way. Ananda When the good person who is cultivating samadhi and samatha has put an end to the form skanda, he can see the mind of all Buddhas as if seeing an image reflected in a clear mirror. He seems to have obtained something but he cannot use it. In this, he resembles a paralyzed person. His hands and feet are intact, his seeing and hearing are not distorted, and yet his mind has come under a deviant influence, so that he is unable to move. This is the region of the feeling skanda. Once the problem of paralysis subsides, his mind can then leave his body and look back upon his face. It can go or stay as it pleases, without further hindrance. This is the end of the feeling skanda. This person can then transcend the turbidity of views. Contemplating the cause of the feeling skanda, one sees that false thoughts of illusory clarity are its source. Ananda, in this situation the good person experiences a brilliant light. As a result of the excessive internal pressure in his mind, he is suddenly overwhelmed with such boundless sadness that he looks upon even mosquitoes and gadflies as newborn children. He is filled with pity 
and unconsciously bursts into tears. This is called overexertion in suppressing the mind in the course of cultivation. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. If he realizes that, and remains unconfused, then after a time, it will disappear. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of sadness will enter his mind. Then, as soon as he sees someone, he will feel sad and cry uncontrollably. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, Ananda, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. At that time, he has a sublime vision and is overwhelmed with gratitude. In this situation, he suddenly evinces tremendous courage. His mind is bold and keen. He resolves to equal all Buddhas and says he can transcend three akamsayayas of eons in a single thought. This is called being too anxious to excel in cultivation. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. If he realizes that and remains unconfused, then after a time it will disappear. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of sadness will enter his mind. Then as soon as he sees someone, he will feel sad and cry uncontrollably. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. With no new realization immediately ahead of him, and having lost his former status as well, his power of wisdom weakens, and he enters an impasse in which he sees nothing to anticipate. Suddenly a feeling of tremendous monotony and thirst arises in his mind. At all times he is fixated in memories that do not disperse. He mistakes this for a sign of diligence and vigor. This is called cultivating the mind but losing oneself due to lack of wisdom. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of memory will enter his mind. Day and night it will hold his mind suspended in one place. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good mind sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. His wisdom becomes stronger than his samadhi, and he mistakenly becomes impetuous. Cherishing the supremacy of his nature, he imagines that he is a nishyana, and rests content with his minor achievement. This is called applying the mind, but straying away from constant examination and becoming preoccupied with ideas and opinions. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, 
than a lowly demon that is easily satisfied will enter his mind. As soon as he sees someone, he will announce, I have realized the unsurpassed absolute truth! Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. He has not yet obtained any results, and his prior state of mind has already disappeared. Surveying the two extremes, he feels that he is in great danger. Suddenly he becomes greatly distraught, as if he were seated on the iron bed, or as if he has taken poison. He has no wish to go on living, and he is always asking people to take his life so he can be released sooner. This is called cultivating but not understanding expedience. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of chronic depression will enter his mind. He may take up knives and swords and cut his own flesh, happily giving up his life. Or else, driven by constant anxiety, he may flee into the wilderness and be unwilling to see people. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, a good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. As he dwells in this purity, his mind is tranquil and at ease. Suddenly a feeling of boundless joy wells up in him. There is such bliss in his mind that he cannot contain it. This is called experiencing lightness and ease, but lacking the wisdom to control it. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon that likes happiness will enter his mind. As soon as he sees someone, he will laugh, he will sing and dance in the streets, he will say that he has already obtained unobstructed liberation. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. He says he is already satisfied. Suddenly, a feeling of unreasonable, intense self-satisfaction may arise in him. It may include pride, outrageous pride, haughty pride, overweening pride, and pride based on inferiority, all of which occur at once. In his mind, he even looks down on the Tathagatas of the Ten Directions, how much the more so on the lesser positions of hearers, and those enlightened by conditions. This is called viewing oneself as supreme, but lacking the wisdom to save oneself. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood, but if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of intense arrogance will enter his mind. He will not bow to stupas or in temples. He will destroy sutras and images. He will say to the Dhanapatis, These are gold, bronze, clay or wood. The sutras are just leaves or cloth. The flesh body is what is real and eternal. 
but you don't revere it. Instead, you venerate clay, and faith in him will follow him to destroy the images or bury them. He will mislead beings so that they fall into the relentless hells. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. In this refined understanding, he awakens completely to subtle principles. Everything is in accord with his wishes. He may suddenly experience limitless lightness and ease in his mind. He may say that he has become a sage and attained great self-mastery. This is called attaining lightness and clarity due to wisdom. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon that likes lightness and clarity will enter his mind. Claiming that he is already satisfied, he will not strive to make further progress. For the most part, such cultivators will become like the unlearned bhikshu. He will mislead living beings so that they will fall into the Avicii hell. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further in this state of samadhi, the good person sees disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. In that clear awakening, he experiences an illusory clarity. Within that, suddenly he may veer towards the view of external extinction, deny cause and effect, and take everything as empty. The thought of emptiness so predominates that he comes to believe that there is external extinction after death. This is called the mental state of samadhi dissolving so that one loses sight of what is right. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, then a demon of emptiness will enter his mind. He will slander the holding of precepts, calling it a small vehicle dharma. He will say, since bodhisattvas have awakened to emptiness, what is there to hold or violate? This person, in the presence of his faithful dhanapatis, will often drink wine, eat meat, and engage in wanton lust. The power of the demon will keep his followers from doubting or denouncing him. After the ghost has possessed him for a long time, he may consume excrement and urine, or meat and wine, claiming that all such things are empty. He will break the Buddha's moral precepts and mislead people into committing offenses. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Further, in this state of samadhi, the good person sees the disintegration of the form skanda and understands the feeling skanda. He savors the state of illusory clarity, and it deeply enters his mind and bones. Boundless love may suddenly well forth from his mind. When that love becomes extreme, he goes insane with greed and lust. This is called when an agreeable state of samadhi enters one's mind, lacking the wisdom to control oneself and mistakenly engaging in lustful behavior. If he understands, then there is no error. This experience does not indicate sagehood. But if he considers himself a sage, 
than a demon of desire will enter his mind. He will become an outspoken advocate of lust, calling it the way to Buddha. He will teach his lay followers to indiscriminately engage in acts of lust, calling those who commit acts of lust his dharma heirs. The power of spirits and ghosts in the ending age will enable him to attract a following of ordinary, naive people numbering 100, 200, 5 or 600, or as many as 1,000 or 10,000. When the demon becomes bored, it will leave the person's body. Once the person's charisma is gone, he will run afoul of the law. He will mislead living beings so that they fall into the relentless hells. Lacking proper samadhi, he will certainly fall. Ananda, all ten of these states may occur in dhyana as one's mental effort interacts with the feeling skanda. Dull and confused living beings do not evaluate themselves. Encountering such situations in their confusion, they fail to recognize them and say that they have become sages, thereby uttering a great lie. They will fall into the relentless hells. In the Dharma-ending age, after my nirvana, all of you should pass on the Tathagata's teachings so that all living beings can awaken to their meaning. Do not let the demons of the heavens have their way. Offer protection so that all can realize the unsurpassed way. Ananda When the good person who is cultivating samadhi has put an end to the feeling skanda, although he has not achieved freedom from outflows, his mind can leave his body the way a bird escapes from a cage. From within his ordinary body, he already has the potential for ascending through the bodhisattva's sixty levels of sagehood. He attains the body produced by intent and can roam freely without obstruction. This is like someone talking in his sleep. Although he does not know what he is doing, his words are clear and his voice and inflection are all in order. So those who are awake can understand what he is saying. This is the region of the thinking skanda. If he puts an end to his stirring thoughts and rids himself of superfluous thinking, it is as if he has purged defilement from the enlightened understanding mind. Then he is perfectly clear about the births and deaths of all categories of beings from beginning to end. This is the end of the thinking skanda. He can then transcend the turbidity of afflictions. Contemplating the cause of the thinking skanda, one sees that interconnected false thoughts are its source. Ananda, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after feeling skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves its perfect brightness, so he sharpens his concentrated thought as he greedily seeks for cleverness and skill. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims that he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. 
When he comes to see that good person who seeks cleverness and skill, he arranges a seat and speaks the Dharma. In an instant, he may appear to be a bhiksu, enabling that person to see him as such, or he may appear as a chakra, as a woman, or as a bhiksuni, or his body may emit light as he sleeps in a dark room. The good person is beguiled and fooled into thinking that the other is a bodhisattva. He believes the other's teachings, and his mind is swayed. He breaks the Buddha's moral precepts and covertly indulges his greedy desires. The other person is fond of speaking about calamities, auspicious events, and unusual changes. He may say that a Tathagata has appeared in the world at a certain place. He may speak of catastrophic fires or wars, thus frightening people into squandering their family wealth without reason. This is a strange ghost that, in its old age, has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person, but when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciple and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, Ananda, in the unhindered clarity and work that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within Samadhi, his mind craves to roam about, and he lets his subtle thoughts fly out as he greedily seeks for adventure. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims that he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks to roam, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. His own body does not change its appearance, but those listening to the Dharma suddenly see themselves sitting on jeweled lotuses and their entire bodies transformed into clusters of purple-golden light. Each person in the audience experiences that state and feels he has obtained something unprecedented. The good person is beguiled and fooled into thinking the other is a bodhisattva. Lust and laxity corrupt his mind. He breaks the Buddha's moral precepts and covertly indulges his greedy desires. The other person is fond of saying that Buddhas are appearing in the world. He claims that in a certain place, a certain person is actually a transformation body of a certain Buddha. Or he says that a certain person is such and such a bodhisattva who has come to teach humankind. People who witness this are filled with admiration. Their wrong views multiply and their wisdom of modes is destroyed. This is a drought ghost that in its old age has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person, but when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. 
Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling Skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within Samadhi, his mind craves spiritual oneness, so he clarifies his concentrated thought as he greedily seeks for union. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is actually possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks union, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. Neither his own body nor the bodies of those listening to the Dharma go through any external transformations, but he makes the minds of the listeners become enlightened before they listen to the Dharma. So they experience changes in every thought. They may have the knowledge of past lives or the knowledge of others' thoughts. They may see the hells or know all the good and evil events in the human realm. They may speak verses or spontaneously recite sutras. Each person is elated and feels he has obtained something unprecedented. The good person is beguiled and fooled into thinking the other is a bodhisattva. His thoughts become entangled in love. He breaks the Buddha's moral precepts and covertly indulges his greedy desires. He is fond of saying that there are greater Buddhas and lesser Buddhas, earlier Buddhas and later Buddhas, that among them are true Buddhas and false Buddhas, male Buddhas and female Buddhas, and that the same is true of bodhisattvas. When people witness this, their initial resolve is washed away, and they easily get carried away with their wrong understanding. This is a May ghost that in its old age has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person, but when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling Skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within Samadhi, his mind craves to know the origins of things, so he exhaustively investigates the nature of physical things and their changes from beginning to end. He intensifies the keenness of his thoughts as he greedily seeks to analyze things. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims that he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks to know the origins of things, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. His body has an awesome spiritual quality, which subdues the seeker. He makes the minds of those gathered beside his seat spontaneously compliant, even before they have heard the Dharma. He says to all those people that the Buddha's Nirvana, Bodhi, and Dharma body are there before them in the form of his own physical body. 
He says, The successive begetting of fathers and sons from generation to generation is itself the Dharma body, which is permanent and never-ending. What you see right now are those very Buddha lands. There are no other pure dwellings or golden features. Those people believe and accept his words, forgetting their initial resolve. They offer up their lives, feeling they have obtained something unprecedented. They are all beguiled and confused into thinking he is a bodhisattva. As they pursue his ideas, they break the Buddha's moral precepts and covertly indulge their greedy desires. He is fond of saying that the eyes, ears, nose, and tongue are the pure land, that the male and female organs are the true place of bodhi and nirvana. Ignorant people believe these filthy words. This is a poisonous ghost, or an evil paralysis ghost, that in its old age has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person. But when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciple and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, the good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves revelations from afar, so he pours all his energy into this intense investigation as he greedily seeks for imperceptible spiritual responses. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person completely unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks revelations, he arranges a seat and speaks the Dharma. He briefly appears to his listeners in a body that looks a hundred or a thousand years old. They experience a defiling love for him and cannot bear to part with him. They personally act as his servants, tirelessly making the four kinds of offerings to him. Each member of the assembly believes that this person is his former teacher, his original good and wise advisor. They give rise to love for his dharma and stick to him as if glued, feeling they have obtained something unprecedented. The good person is beguiled and fooled into thinking the other is a bodhisattva, Attracted to the other's thinking, he breaks the Buddha's moral precepts and covertly indulges his greedy desires. He is fond of saying, in a past life, in a certain incarnation, I rescued a certain person who was then my wife or my mistress or my brother. Now I have come to rescue you again. We will stay together and go to another world to make offerings to a certain Buddha. Or he may say, there is a heaven of great brilliance where a Buddha now dwells. It is the resting place of all Tathagatas. Ignorant people believe his ravings and lose their original resolve. This is a pestilence ghost that in its old age has become a demon. 
It disturbs and confuses the good person. But when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, the good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves deep absorption, so he restrains himself with energetic diligence and likes to dwell in secluded places as he greedily seeks for peace and quiet. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks seclusion, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. He causes all of his listeners to think they know their karma from the past. Or he may say to someone there, You haven't died yet, but you have already become an animal. Then he instructs another person to step on the person's tail, and suddenly the first person cannot stand up. At that point, all in the assembly pour out their hearts in respect and admiration to him. If someone has a thought, the demon detects it immediately. He establishes intense ascetic practices that exceed the Buddha's moral precepts. He slanders bhikshus, scolds the assembly of disciples, and exposes people's private affairs without fear of ridicule or rejection. He is fond of foretelling calamities and auspicious events, and when they come to pass, he is not wrong in the slightest. This is a ghost with great powers, that in its old age has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person, but when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, the good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves more knowledge and understanding, so he diligently toils at examining and probing as he greedily seeks to know past lives. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks knowledge, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. There in the Dharma assembly, inexplicably, that person may obtain an enormous precious pearl. The demon may sometimes change into an animal that holds the pearl or other jewels, bamboo tablets, tallies, talismans, letters, and other unusual things in its mouth. 
the demon first gives the objects to the person and afterwards possesses him. Or he may fool his audience by burying the objects underground and then saying that a moonlight pearl is illuminating the place. Thereupon, the audience feels they have obtained something unique. He may eat only medicinal herbs and not partake of prepared food, or he may eat only one sesame seed and one grain of wheat a day and still look robust. This is because he is sustained by the power of the demon. He slanders bhiksus and scolds his assembly of disciples without fear of ridicule or rejection. He is fond of talking about treasure troves in other locations, or of remote and hidden places where sages and worthies of the Ten Directions dwell. Those who follow him often see strange and unusual people. This is a ghost or spirit of the mountain forests, earth, cities, rivers, and mountains that in its old age has become a demon. The person it possesses may advocate promiscuity and violate the Buddha's precepts. He may covertly indulge in the five desires with his followers, or he may appear to be vigorous, eating only wild plants. His behavior is erratic, and he disturbs and confuses the good person, but when the demon tires, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves spiritual powers and all manner of transformations, so he investigates the source of transformations as he greedily seeks for spiritual powers. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, truly unaware that he is possessed by a demon, also claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks spiritual powers, he arranges a seat and speaks the Dharma. The possessed person may hold fire in his hands and, grasping a portion of it, put a flame on the head of each listener in the fourfold assembly. The flames on top of their heads are several feet high, yet they are not hot and no one is burned. Or he may walk on water as if on dry land, or he may sit motionless in the air, or he may enter into a bottle or stay in a bag, or he may pass through window panes and walls without obstruction. Only when attacked by weapons does he feel ill at ease. He declares himself to be a Buddha and, wearing the clothing of a layperson, receives bows from bhiksus. He slanders dhyana meditation and the moral regulations. He scolds his disciples and exposes people's private affairs without fear of ridicule or rejection. He often talks about spiritual powers and self-mastery. He may cause people to see visions of Buddha lands, but they are unreal and arise merely from the ghost's power to delude people. He praises the indulgence of lust and does not condemn lewd conduct. He uses indecent means to transmit his dharma. 
This is a powerful nature spirit, a mountain sprite, a sea sprite, a wind sprite, a river sprite, an earth sprite, or a grass and tree sprite that has evolved over long ages. It may be a dragon goblin, or a rishi who has been reborn as a goblin, or again a rishi who, having reached the end of his appointed time, should have died, but whose body does not decay and is possessed by a goblin. In its old age, it has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person. But when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, this good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. Within samadhi, his mind craves to enter cessation, and so he investigates the nature of transformations as he greedily seeks for profound emptiness. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks emptiness, he arranges a seat and speaks the Dharma. In the midst of the great assembly, his physical form suddenly disappears, and no one in the assembly can see him. Then, out of nowhere, he abruptly reappears. He can appear and disappear at will, or he can make his body transparent like crystal. From his hands and feet releases the fragrance of sandalwood, or his excrement and urine may be sweet as thick rock candy. He slanders precepts and is contemptuous of those who have left the home life. He often says that there is no cause and no effect, that once we die we are gone forever, that there is no afterlife, and that there are no ordinary people and no sages. Although he has obtained a state of empty stillness, he covertly indulges his greedy desires. Those who give in to his lust also adopt his views of emptiness and deny cause and effect. This is an essence that was created during an eclipse of the sun or moon, having fallen on gold, jade, a rare fungus, a unicorn, a phoenix, a tortoise, or a crane, the essence endowed it with life so that it did not die for thousands or tens of thousands of years, and eventually became a spirit. Then it was born into this land, and in its old age, has become a demon. It disturbs and confuses the good person. But when it tires of doing so, it will leave the other person's body. Then both the disciples and the teacher will get in trouble with the law. You should be aware of this in advance, and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Further, in the unhindered clarity and wonder that ensues after the feeling skanda is gone, the good person is untroubled by any deviant mental state and experiences perfect, bright concentration. 
Within Samadhi, his mind craves long life, so he toils at investigating its subtleties as he greedily seeks for immortality. He wishes to cast aside the birth and death of the body, and suddenly he hopes to end the birth and death of thoughts as well, so that he can abide forever in a subtle form. At that time, a demon from the heavens seizes the opportunity it has been waiting for. Its spirit possesses another person and uses him as a mouthpiece to expound the sutras and the dharma. This person, unaware that he is possessed by a demon, claims he has reached unsurpassed nirvana. When he comes to see that good person who seeks long life, he arranges a seat and speaks the dharma. He is fond of saying that he can go places and come back without hindrance, perhaps traveling 10,000 miles and returning in the twinkling of an eye. He can also bring things back from wherever he goes, or he may tell someone to walk from one end of the room to the other, a distance of just a few paces. Then, even if the person walked fast for years, he could not reach the wall. Therefore, people believe in the possessed person and mistake him for a Buddha. He often says, All beings in the ten directions are my children. I gave birth to all Buddhas. I created the world. I am the original Buddha. I created this world naturally, not due to cultivation. This may be a Chamunda, sent from the retinue of the demon in the heaven of sovereignty, or a youthful Pishacha from the heaven of the four kings that has not yet brought forth the resolve. It takes advantage of the person's luminous clarity and devours his essence and energy. Or perhaps without having to rely on a teacher, the cultivator personally sees a being that tells him, I am a Vajra spirit who has come to give you long life. Or the being transforms itself into a beautiful woman and engages him in frenzied lust, so that within a year his vitality is exhausted. He talks to himself, and to anyone listening, he sounds like a goblin. The people around him do not realize what is happening. In most cases, such a person will get in trouble with the law, but before he is punished, he will die from depletion. The demon disturbs and confuses the person to the point of death. You should be aware of this in advance and not get caught up in the cycle of transmigration. If you are confused and do not understand, you will fall into the relentless hells. Ananda you should know that in the Dharma-ending age, these ten kinds of demons may leave the home life to cultivate the way within my Dharma. They may possess other people, or they may manifest themselves in various forms. All of them will claim that they already have accomplished proper and pervasive knowledge and awareness. They praise lust and break the Buddha's moral precepts. The evil demonic teachers and their demonic disciples that I just discussed transmit their teaching through licentious activity. Such deviant spirits take over cultivators' minds, and after as few as nine lives or as many as a hundred generations, they turn true practitioners entirely into followers of demons. When their lives are over, they are bound to end up as one of the demonic hordes. They will lose their proper and pervasive knowledge and fall into the relentless hells. You need not enter nirvana yet. Although you are completing your attainment to the level beyond study, hold nonetheless to your vows and enter the dharma-ending age. Bring forth great compassion to rescue and take across living beings 
who have proper minds and deep faith. Do not let them become possessed by demons. Help them instead to attain proper knowledge and views. I have already rescued you from birth and death. By venerating the Buddha's words, you will be repaying the Buddha's kindness. Ananda All ten of these states may occur in dhyana as one's mental effort interacts with the thinking skanda. Dull and confused living beings do not evaluate themselves. Entering such situations, in their confusion they fail to recognize them and say they have become sages, thereby uttering a great lie. They will fall into the relentless hells. In the Dharma-ending age, after my nirvana, all of you should pass on the Tathagata's teachings so that all living beings can awaken to their meaning. Do not let the demons of the heavens have their way. Offer protection so that all can realize the unsurpassed way. Ananda When the good person who is cultivating samadhi has put an end to the thinking skanda, he is ordinarily free of dreaming and idle thinking, so he stays the same whether in wakefulness or in sleep. His mind is aware, clear, empty, and still, like a cloudless sky, devoid of any coarse sense impressions. He contemplates everything in the world, the mountains, the rivers, and the earth, as reflections in a mirror, appearing without attachment and vanishing without any trace. They are simply received and reflected. He does away with all his old habits, and only the essential truth remains. From this point on, as the origin of production and destruction is exposed, he will completely see all the twelve categories of living beings in the ten directions. Although he has not fathomed the source of their individual lives, he will see that they share a common basis of life, which appears as a mirage, shimmering and fluctuating, and is the ultimate pivotal point of the illusory sense faculties and sense objects. This is the region of the formations skanda. Once the basic nature of this shimmering fluctuation returns to its original clarity, his habits will cease, like waves subsiding to become clear, calm water. This is the end of the formations skanda. This person will then be able to transcend the turbidity of living beings. Contemplating the cause of the formations skanda, one sees that subtle and hidden false thoughts are its source. Ananda You should know that when the good person has obtained proper knowledge in his place of shamatha, his mind is unmoving, clear, and proper. It cannot be disturbed by the ten kinds of demons from the heavens. He is now able to intently and thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings. As the origin of each category becomes apparent, he can contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting 
and pervasive fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate on that pervasive source, he could fall into error with two theories of the absence of cause. First, perhaps this person sees no cause for the origin of life. Why? Since he has completely destroyed the mechanism of production, he can, by means of the 800 merits of the eye organ, see all beings in the swirling flow of karma during 80,000 eons, dying in one place and being reborn in another as they undergo transmigration. But he cannot see beyond 80,000 eons. Therefore, he concludes that for the last 80,000 eons, living beings in the ten directions of this and other worlds have come into being without any cause. Because of this speculation, he will lose proper and pervasive knowledge, fall into externalism, and become confused about the Bodhi nature. Second, this person sees no cause for the end of life, and why? Since he perceives the origin of life, he believes that people are always born as people, and birds are always born as birds, that crows always have been black and swans have always been white, that humans and gods have always stood upright and animals have always walked on four legs, that whiteness does not come from being washed and blackness does not come from being dyed, and that there have never been nor will there ever be any changes for 80,000 eons. He says, as I now examine to the end of this life, I find the same holds true. In fact, I have never seen Bodhi, so how can there be such a thing as the attainment of Bodhi? You should now realize that there is no cause for the existence of any phenomena. Because of this speculation, he will lose proper and pervasive knowledge, fall into externalism, and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the first external teaching, which postulates the absence of cause. Ananda. In his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is unmoving, clear, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings, and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate on its pervasive constancy, he could fall into error with four theories of pervasive permanence. First, as this person thoroughly investigates the mind and its states, he may conclude that both are causeless. Through his cultivation, he knows that in 20,000 eons, as beings in the ten directions undergo endless rounds of birth and death, they are never annihilated. Therefore, he speculates that the mind and its states are permanent. Second, as this person thoroughly investigates the source of the four elements, he may conclude that they are permanent in nature. Through his cultivation, he knows that in 40,000 eons, as living beings in the ten directions undergo births and deaths, their substances exist permanently and are never annihilated. Therefore, he speculates that this situation is permanent. Third, as this person thoroughly investigates the sixth sense faculty, the manas, and the consciousness that grasps and receives, 
he concludes that the origin of mind, intellect, and consciousness is permanent. Through his cultivation, he knows that in 80,000 eons, as all living beings in the ten directions revolve in transmigration, this origin is never destroyed and exists permanently. Investigating this undestroyed origin, he speculates that it is permanent. Fourth, since this person has ended the source of thoughts, there is no more reason for them to arise. In the state of flowing, halting, and turning, the thinking mind, which was the cause of production and destruction, has now ceased forever. So he naturally thinks that this is a state of non-production and non-destruction. As a result of such reasoning, he speculates that this state is permanent. Because of these speculations of permanence, he will lose proper and pervasive knowledge, fall into externalism, and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the second external teaching, which postulates pervasive permanence. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate about self and others, he could fall into error with theories of partial impermanence and partial permanence based on four distorted views. First. As this person contemplates the wonderfully bright mind pervading the ten directions, he concludes that this state of profound stillness is the ultimate spiritual self. Then he speculates, My spiritual self, that is settled, bright, and unmoving, pervades the ten directions. All living beings are within my mind, and there they are born and die by themselves. Therefore, my mind is permanent, while those who undergo birth and death are truly impermanent. Second, instead of contemplating his own mind, this person contemplates in the ten directions worlds as many as the Ganges sands. He regards as ultimately impermanent those worlds that are in eons of decay, and as ultimately permanent those that are not in eons of decay. Third, this person closely examines his own mind and finds it to be subtle and mysterious, like fine motes of dust swirling in the ten directions, unchanging in nature. And yet it can cause his body to be born and then to die. He regards that indestructible nature as his permanent intrinsic nature, and that which undergoes birth and death and flows forth from him as impermanent. Fourth, Knowing that the skanda of thinking has ended, and seeing the flowing of the skanda of formations, this person speculates that the continuous flow of the skanda of formations is permanent, and that the skandas of form, feeling, and thinking, which have already ended, are impermanent. Because of these speculations of impermanence and permanence, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the third external teaching, which postulates partial permanence. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. 
he can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate about the making of certain distinctions, he could fall into error with four theories of finiteness. First, this person speculates that the origin of life flows and functions ceaselessly. He judges that the past and the future are finite, and that the continuity of the mind is infinite. Second, as this person contemplates an interval of 80,000 eons, he can see living beings. But earlier than 80,000 eons is a time of stillness in which he cannot hear or see anything. He regards as infinite that time in which nothing is heard or seen, and as finite that interval in which living beings are seen to exist. Third, this person speculates that his own pervasive knowledge is infinite, and that all other people appear within his awareness. And yet, since he himself has never perceived the nature of their awareness, he says they have not obtained an infinite mind, but only have a finite one. Fourth, this person thoroughly investigates the formation's skanda to the point that it becomes empty. Based on what he sees, in his mind he speculates that each and every living being in its given body is half-living and half-dead. From this he concludes that everything in the world is half-finite and half-infinite. Because of these speculations about the finite and the infinite, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the fourth external teaching, which postulates finiteness. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate on what he knows and sees, he could fall into error with four distorted false theories, which are total speculation based on the sophistry of immortality. First, this person contemplates the source of transformations. Seeing the movement and flow, he says there is change. Seeing the continuity, he says there is constancy. Where he can perceive something, he says there is production. Where he cannot perceive anything, he says there is destruction. He says that the unbroken continuity of causes is increasing, and that the pauses within the continuity are decreasing. He says that the arising of all things is existence, and that the perishing of all things is non-existence. The light of reason shows that his application of mind has led to inconsistent views. If someone comes to seek the Dharma, ask about its meaning, he replies, I am both alive and dead, both existent and non-existent, both increasing and decreasing. He always speaks in a confusing way, causing that person to forget what he was going to say. Second. This person attentively contemplates his mind and finds that everything is non-existent. He has a realization based on non-existence. When anyone comes to ask him questions, he replies with only one word. He says no. Aside from saying no, he does not speak. Third, 
This person attentively contemplates his mind and finds that everything is existent. He has a realization based on existence. When anyone comes to ask him questions, he replies with only one word. He only says, yes. Aside from saying, yes, he does not speak. Fourth, this person becomes both existence and non-existence. Experiencing this branching, his mind becomes confused. When anyone comes to ask questions, he tells them, Existence is also non-existence, but within non-existence there is no existence. It is all sophistry and does not stand up under scrutiny. Because of these speculations, which are empty sophistries, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the fifth external teaching which postulates four distorted false theories that are total speculation based on the sophistry of immortality. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings, and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But, if he begins to speculate on the endless flow, he could fall into error with the confused idea that forms exist after death. He may strongly identify with his body and say that form is himself, or he may see himself as perfectly encompassing all worlds and say that he contains form, or he may perceive all external conditions as contingent upon himself and say that form belongs to him or he may decide that he relies on the continuity of the formation skanda and say that he is within form. In all of these speculations, he says that forms exist after death. Expanding the idea, he comes up with 16 cases of the existence of forms. Then he may speculate that afflictions are always afflictions and Bodhi is always Bodhi, and the two exist side by side, without contradicting each other. Because of these speculations about what exists after death, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the sixth external teaching, which postulates confused theories of the existence of forms after death in the realm of the five skandhas. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate on the skandhas of form, feeling, and thinking which have already ended, he could fall into error with the confused idea that forms do not exist after death. Seeing that his form is gone, his physical shape seems to lack a cause. As he contemplates the absence of thought, there is nothing to which his mind can become attached. Knowing that his feelings are gone, he has no further involvements. Those skandhas have vanished. Although there is still some coming into being, there is no feeling or thought, and he concludes that he is like grass or wood. Since those qualities do not exist at present, how can there be any existence of forms after death? 
because of his examinations and comparisons, he decides that after death there is no existence. Expanding the idea, he comes up with eight cases of the non-existence of forms. From that, he may speculate that nirvana and cause and effect are all empty, that they are mere names and ultimately do not exist. Because of those speculations that forms do not exist after death, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the seventh external teaching, which postulates confused theories of the non-existence of forms after death in the realm of the five skandhas. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings, and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. In this state, where the skanda of formations remains, but the skandhas of feeling and thinking are gone, if he begins to speculate that there is both existence and non-existence, thus contradicting himself, he could fall into error with confused theories that deny both existence and non-existence after death. Regarding form, feeling, and thinking, he sees that existence is not really existence. Within the flow of the formation skanda, he sees that non-existence is not really non-existence. Considering back and forth this way, he thoroughly investigates the realms of these skandhas and derives an eightfold negation of forms. No matter which skanda is mentioned, he says that after death it neither exists nor does it not exist. Further, because he speculates that all forms are changing in nature, an insight flashes through his mind, leading him to deny both existence and non-existence. He cannot determine what is unreal and what is real. Because of these speculations that deny both existence and non-existence after death, the future is murky to him, and he cannot say anything about it. Therefore, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the eighth external teaching, which postulates confused theories that deny both existence and non-existence after death in the realm of the five skandhas. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate that there is no existence after death, he could fall into error with seven theories of the cessation of existence. He may speculate that the body will cease to exist, or that when desire has ended, there is cessation of existence, or that after suffering has ended, there is cessation of existence, or that when bliss reaches an ultimate point, there is cessation of existence, or that when reunification reaches an ultimate point, there is cessation of existence. Considering back and forth in this way, he exhaustively investigates the limits of the seven states and sees that they have already ceased to be and will not exist again. Because of these speculations that existence ceases after death, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. 
This is the ninth external teaching, which postulates confused theories of the cessation of existence after death in the realm of the five skandhas. Further, in his practice of samadhi, the good person's mind is firm, unmoving, and proper, and can no longer be disturbed by demons. He can thoroughly investigate the origin of all categories of beings, and contemplate the source of the subtle, fleeting, and constant fluctuation. But if he begins to speculate on existence after death, he could fall into error with five theories of nirvana. He may consider the heavens of the desire realm a true refuge because he contemplates their extensive brightness and longs for it, or he may take refuge in the first dhyana because there his nature is free from worry, or he may take refuge in the second dhyana because there his mind is free from suffering, or he may take refuge in the third dhyana because he delights in its extreme joy, or he may take refuge in the fourth dhyana, reasoning that suffering and bliss are both ended there, and that he will no longer undergo transmigration. These heavens are subject to outflows, but in his confusion he thinks that they are unconditioned, and he takes these five states of tranquility to be refuges of supreme purity. Considering back and forth in this way, he decides that these five states are ultimate. Because of these speculations about five kinds of immediate nirvana, he will fall into externalism and become confused about the Bodhi nature. This is the tenth external teaching, which postulates confused theories of the five kinds of immediate nirvana in the realm of the five skandhas. Ananda all ten of these crazy explanations may occur in Dhyana as one's mental effort interacts with the formation skanda. That is why these insights appear. Dull and confused living beings do not evaluate themselves. Encountering such situations, they mistake their confusion for understanding and say that they have become sages, thereby uttering a great lie. They will fall into the relentless hells. After my nirvana, all of you should pass on the Tathagata's teachings, transmitting and revealing them to those in the Dharma-ending age, so that living beings everywhere can awaken to these truths. Do not let the demons arise in their minds and cause them to commit grave offenses. Offer protection so that wrong views will be eradicated. Teach them to awaken to true principles in body and mind, so that they do not stray off the unsurpassed path. Do not let them aspire to and be content with small attainments. You should become kings of great enlightenment and serve as guides of purity. Ananda, when that good person in cultivating samadhi has put an end to the formations skanda, the subtle, fleeting fluctuations, the deep, imperceptible, pivotal source, and the common foundation from which all life in the world springs, are suddenly obliterated. In the submerged network of the retributive karma of the Putgala, the karmic resonance are interrupted. There is about to be a great illumination in the sky of Nirvana, 
It is like gazing east at the cock's final crow to see the light of dawn. The six sense faculties are empty and still. There is no further racing about. Inside and outside, there is profound brightness. He enters without entering. Fathoming the source of life of the twelve categories of beings throughout the ten directions, he can contemplate that source without being drawn into any of the categories. He has become identical with the realms of the ten directions. The light does not fade, and what was hidden before is now revealed. This is the region of the consciousness skanda. If he has become identical with the beckoning masses, he may obliterate the individuality of the six gates and succeed in uniting and opening them. Seeing and hearing become linked so that they function interchangeably and purely. The worlds of the ten directions and his own body and mind are as bright and transparent as Vaiduria. This is the end of the consciousness skanda. This person can then transcend the turbidity of lifespans. Contemplating the cause of the consciousness skanda, one sees that the negation of existence and the negation of non-existence are both unreal, and that upside-down false thoughts are its source. Ananda. You should know that the good person has thoroughly seen the formation skanda as empty, and he returns consciousness to the source. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. He can cause the individual sense faculties of his body to unite and open, he also has a pervasive awareness of all the categories of beings in the ten directions. His awareness is pervasive. He can enter the perfect source. But if he regards what he is returning to as the cause of true permanence and interrupts this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of holding to that cause. Kapila the Sankhyan, with his theory of returning to the truth of the unmanifest, will become his companion. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the first state, in which he concludes that there is a place to which to return, based on the idea that there is something to attain. He strays far from perfect penetration, and turns his back on the city of Nirvana thus sowing the seeds of externalism. Further, Ananda, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation's skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. He may regard that to which he is returning as his own body, and may see all beings in the twelve categories throughout space as flowing forth from his body. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of maintaining that he has an ability which he does not really have. Mahasvara, who manifests his boundless body, 
will become his companion. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the second state in which he draws conclusions about the working of an ability based on an idea that he has such an ability. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds for being born in the heaven of great pride, where the self is considered all-pervading and perfect. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. If he regards what he is returning to as a refuge, he will suspect that his body and mind come forth from there, and that all things throughout space in the ten directions arise from there as well. He will explain that place from which all things issue forth is the truly permanent body, which is not subject to production and destruction. While still within production and destruction, he may prematurely reckon that he abides in permanence. Since he is deluded about non-production, he is also confused about production and destruction. He is sunk in confusion. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of taking what is not permanent to be permanent. He will speculate that the sovereign god, Ishvara Deva, is his companion. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the third state, in which he makes a false speculation based on the idea that there is a refuge. He strays far from perfect penetration, and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds of a distorted view of perfection. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation's skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. Based on his idea that there is universal awareness, he formulates a theory that all the plants in the ten directions are sentient, not different from human beings. He claims that plants can become people, and that when people die, they again become plants in the ten directions. If he considers this idea of unrestricted universal awareness to be supreme, he will fall into the error of maintaining that what is not aware has awareness. Vasishtha and Sainika, who maintained the idea of comprehensive awareness, will become his companions. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the fourth state, in which he draws an erroneous conclusion based on the idea that there is universal awareness. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds of a distorted view of awareness. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation's skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. If he has attained versatility in the perfect fusion and interchangeable functioning of the sense faculties, he may speculate that all things arise from these perfect transformations. He then seeks the light of fire 
delights in the purity of water, loves the wind's circuitous flow, and contemplates the accomplishments of the earth. He reveres and serves them all. He takes these mundane elements to be a fundamental cause and considers them to be everlasting. He will fall into the error of taking what is not production to be production. Kashyapa and the Brahmins, who seek to transcend birth and death by diligently serving fire and worshipping water, will become his companions. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the fifth state, in which he confusedly pursues the elements, setting up a false cause that leads to false aspirations based on speculations about his attachment to worship. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds of a distorted view of transformation. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. He may speculate that there is an emptiness within the perfect brightness, and based on that he denies the myriad transformations, taking their external cessation as his refuge. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of taking what is not a refuge to be a refuge. Those abiding in the shunyata of the heaven of non-thought will become his companions, confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the sixth state, in which he realizes a state of voidness based on the idea of emptiness within the perfect brightness. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds of annihilationism. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. In the state of what seems to be perfect permanence, he may bolster his body, hoping to live for a long time in that subtle and perfect condition without dying. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of being greedy for something unattainable. Asita and those who seek long life will become his companions. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the seventh state, in which he sets up the false cause of bolstering and aspires to permanent worldly existence based on his attachment to the life source. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana thus sowing the seeds for false thoughts of lengthening life. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. As he contemplates the interconnection of all lives, he wants to hang on to worldly enjoyments and is afraid they will come to an end. Caught up in this thought, he will, by the power of transformation, seat himself in a lotus flower palace, conjure up an abundance of the seven precious things, increase his retinue of beautiful women, and indulge his mind. 
If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall into the error of taking what is not the truth to be the truth. Vignakara will become his companion. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the eighth state, in which he decides to indulge in worldly enjoyments based on his wrong thinking. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds for becoming a demon of the heavens. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation Skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. In his understanding of life, he distinguishes the subtle and the coarse, and determines the true and the false. But he only seeks a response in the mutual repayment of cause and effect, and he turns his back on the way of purity. In the practice of seeing suffering, eliminating accumulation, realizing cessation, and cultivating the way, he dwells in cessation and stops there, making no further progress. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall and become a fixed nature hearer. Unlearned sanghans of those of overweening pride will become his companions. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the ninth state, in which he aspires toward fruition of cessation based on perfecting the mind that seeks responses. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds for becoming enmeshed in emptiness. Further, the good person has thoroughly seen the formation Skanda as empty. He has ended production and destruction, but he has not yet perfected the subtle wonder of ultimate serenity. In that perfectly fused, pure, bright enlightenment, as he investigates the profound wonder, he may take it to be nirvana and fail to make further progress. If he interprets this as a supreme state, he will fall and become a fixed nature pratyeka. Those enlightened by conditions and solitarily enlightened ones who do not turn their minds to the great vehicle will become his companions. Confused about the Bodhi of the Buddhas, he will lose his knowledge and understanding. This is the tenth state in which he realizes a profound brightness based on fusing the mind with perfect enlightenment. He strays far from perfect penetration and turns his back on the city of Nirvana, thus sowing the seeds for being able to surpass his attachment to the brightness of perfect enlightenment. Ananda these ten states of dhyana are due to crazy explanations on the path of cultivation. Relying on them, the cultivator becomes confused and claims to have attained complete realization before actually having done so. All these states are the results of interactions between the consciousness skanda and his mental efforts. Dull and confused living beings do not evaluate themselves. Encountering such situations, their minds are confused by their individual likings and past habits, so they stop to rest in what they take to be the ultimate refuge. 
They claim to have perfected unsurpassed Bodhi, thus uttering a great lie. After their karmic retribution as externalists and deviant demons comes to an end, they will fall into the relentless hells. The hearers and those enlightened by conditions cannot make further progress. All of you should cherish the resolve to sustain the way of the Tathagata. After my nirvana, transmit this Dharma door to those in the Dharma ending age, universally causing living beings to awaken to its meaning. Do not let the demons of views cause them to create their own grave offenses and fall. Protect, comfort, and compassionately rescue them and dispel evil conditions. Enable them to enter the Buddha's knowledge and understanding with body and mind, so that from the beginning to the final accomplishment, they never go astray. It is by relying on this Dharma door that the Tathagatas of the past, as many as fine motes of dust in eons, as many as the Ganges seas, have enlightened their minds and attained the unsurpassed way. When the consciousness skanda ends, your present sense faculties will function interchangeably. Within that interchangeable functioning, you will be able to enter the Bodhisattva's Vajra Dry Wisdom. In your perfect, bright, pure mind, there will be a transformation. It will be like pure Vaidurya that contains a precious moon, and in that way you will transcend the Ten Faiths, the Ten Dwellings, the Ten Practices, the Ten Transferences, the Four Additional Practices, the Vajra-like Ten Grounds of a Bodhisattva's Practice, and the Perfect Brightness of Equal Enlightenment. You will enter the Tathagata's Sea of Wondrous Adornments, perfect the cultivation of Bodhi, and return to the state of non-attainment. These are subtle demonic states that all Buddhas world-honored ones of the past, discerned with their enlightened clarity while in the state of shamatha and vipassana. If you can recognize a demonic state when it appears and wash away the filth in your mind, you will not develop wrong views. The demons of the skandhas will melt away, and the demons from the heavens will be destroyed. The mighty ghosts and spirits will lose their wits and flee and the Li, Mei, and Wang Liang will not dare to show themselves again. You will directly arrive at Bodhi without the slightest weariness, progressing from lower positions to great nirvana without becoming confused or discouraged. If there are beings in the Dharma-ending age who delight in cultivating Samadhi, but who are stupid and dull, who fail to recognize the importance of Dhyana, or who have not heard the Dharma spoken. You should be concerned lest they get caught up in deviant ways. You should single-mindedly exhort them to uphold the Dharani mantra of the Buddha's summit. If they cannot recite it from memory, they should have it written out and place it in the meditation hall or wear it on their person. Then none of the demons will be able to disturb them. You should revere this final paradigm of ultimate cultivation and progress of the Tathagatas of the Ten Directions. Ananda then arose from his seat. Having heard the Buddha's instruction, he bowed and respectfully upheld it, remembering every word and forgetting none.
Then once more in the great assembly he spoke to the Buddha. The Buddha has told us that in the manifestation of the five skandhas, there are five kinds of falseness that come from our own thinking minds. We have never before been blessed with such subtle and wonderful instructions as the Tathagata has now given. Further, are these five skandhas destroyed all at the same time, or are they extinguished in sequence? What are the boundaries of these five layers? We only hope that Tathagata, out of great compassion, will explain this in order to purify the eyes and illuminate the minds of those in the great assembly, and in order to serve as eyes for living beings in the future. The Buddha told Ananda, The essential, true, wonderful brightness and perfect purity of basic enlightenment does not admit birth and death, nor any mundane defilements, nor even empty space itself. All these are brought forth because of false thinking. The source of basic enlightenment, which is wonderfully bright, true, and pure, falsely gives rise to the material world. Just as Yajnadatta became confused about his head when he saw his own reflection, the falseness basically has no cause, but in your false thinking you set up causes and conditions. But those who are confused about the principle of cause and conditions call it spontaneity. Even empty space is an illusory creation. How much the more so are causes and conditions and spontaneity, which are mere speculations made by the false minds of living beings? Ananda, if you perceive the arising of falseness, you can speak of the causes and conditions of that falseness. But if the falseness has no source, you will have to say that the causes and conditions of that falseness basically have no source. How much the more is the case for those who fail to understand this and advocate spontaneity? Therefore the Tathagata has explained to you that the fundamental cause of all five skandhas is false thinking. Your body's initial cause was a thought on the part of your parents, but if you had not entertained any thought in your own mind, you would not have been born. Life is perpetuated by means of thought. As I have said before, when you call to mind the taste of vinegar, your mouth waters. When you think of walking alone on a precipice, the soles of your feet tingle. Since the precipice doesn't exist and there isn't any vinegar, how could your mouth water at the mere mention of vinegar if it were not the case that your body originated from falseness? Therefore, you should know that your present physical body is brought about by the first kind of false thinking, which is characterized by solidity. As described earlier, merely thinking about a high place can cause your body to tingle and ache. Due to that cause, feelings arise and affect your body, so that at present you pursue pleasant feelings and are repelled by unpleasant feelings. These two kinds of feelings that compel you are brought about by the second kind of false thinking, which is characterized by illusory clarity. Once your thoughts arise, they can control your body. Since your body is not the same as your thoughts, why is it that your body follows your thoughts and engages in every sort of grasping at objects? A thought arises, and the body grasps at things in response to the thought. When you are awake, your mind thinks. When you are asleep, you dream. Thus your thinking is stirred to perceive false situations. 
This is the third kind of false thinking, which is characterized by interconnectedness. The metabolic processes never stop. They progress through subtle changes. Your nails and hair grow, your energy wanes, and your skin becomes wrinkled. These processes continue day and night, and yet you never wake up to them. If these things aren't part of you, Ananda, then why does your body keep changing? And if they are really part of you, then why aren't you aware of them? Your formation's skanda continues in thought after thought without cease. It is the fourth kind of false thinking, which is subtle and hidden. Finally, if your pure, bright, clear, and unmoving state is permanent, then there should be no seeing, hearing, awareness, or knowing in your body. If it is genuinely pure and true, it should not contain habits or falseness. How does it happen, then, that having seen some unusual thing in the past, you eventually forget it over time, until neither memory nor forgetfulness of it remain? But then later, upon suddenly seeing that unusual thing again, you remember it clearly from before, without forgetting a single detail. How can you keep track of the permeation that goes on in thought after thought in this pure, clear, and unmoving consciousness? Ananda, you should know that this state of clarity is not real. It is like rapidly flowing water that appears to be still on the surface. Due to its speed, you cannot perceive the flow, but that does not mean it is not flowing. If this were not the source of thinking, then how could one be subject to false habits? If you do not open and unite your six sense faculties so that they function interchangeably, this false thinking will never cease. That's why your seeing, hearing, awareness, and knowing are presently strung together by subtle habits, so that within the profound clarity, existence and non-existence are both unreal. This is the fifth kind of upside-down, minutely subtle thinking. Ananda, these five skandhas of reception develop with five kinds of false thinking. You also wanted to know the depth and scope of each realm. Form and emptiness are the boundaries of form. Contact and separation are the boundaries of feeling. Remembering and forgetting are the boundaries of thinking. Destruction and production are the boundaries of formations. Deep purity entering to unite with deep purity belongs to the boundaries of consciousness. At their source, these five skandhas arise in layers. Their arising is due to consciousness, while their cessation begins with the elimination of form. You may have a sudden awakening to the principle, at which point they all simultaneously vanish. But in terms of the specifics, they are eliminated not all at once, but in sequence. I have already shown you the knots tied with the carpasa cloth. What is it you do not understand that causes you to ask about it again? You should gain a thorough understanding of the origin of this false thinking, and then transmit your understanding to cultivators in the future Dharma-ending age. Let them recognize this falseness, and naturally give rise to deep disdain for it. 
Let them know of Nirvana, so that they will not linger in the triple realm. Ananda. Suppose someone were to fill up all the space in the ten directions with the seven precious things, and then present them as an offering to Buddhas as numerous as motes of dust, with his mind set on serving and making offerings to them in thought after thought. Do you think this person would reap many blessings from making such an offering to the Buddhas? Ananda answered, Since space is limitless, the precious things would be boundless. In the past, someone gave the Buddha seven coins, and consequently was reborn as a wheel-turning king in his next life. As to this person who now fills up all of space and all of the Buddha lands with an offering of precious things that could not be reckoned through endless eons, how could there be a limit to his blessings? The Buddha told Ananda, All Buddhas, Tathagatas, speak words which are not false. There might be another person who had personally committed the four major offenses and the ten parajikas, so that in an instant he would have to pass through the Avicii hells in this world and other worlds, until he had passed through all the relentless hells in the ten directions without exception. And yet if he could explain this Dharma door for just the space of a thought to those in the Dharma-ending age who have not yet studied it, his obstacles from offenses would be eradicated in response to that thought, and all the hells where he was to undergo suffering would become lands of peace and bliss. The blessings he would obtain would surpass those of the person previously mentioned by hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of times, indeed by so many times that no calculations or analogies could express it. Ananda if living beings are able to recite this sutra and uphold this mantra, I could not describe in endless eons how great the benefits will be. Relying on the teaching I have spoken, cultivate in accord with it, and you will directly realize Bodhi without encountering demonic karma. When the Buddha finished speaking this sutra, the bhikshus, bhikshunis, upasakas, Upasikas, and all the gods, humans, and asuras in this world, as well as all the bodhisattvas, those of the two vehicles, sages, immortals, and pure youths in other directions, and the mighty ghosts and spirits of initial resolve all felt elated, made obeisance, and withdrew. Pretty far out, huh? Yeah. I love that one. Um, many things about it. Electricity just went off, but that won't affect us. Um, <clears throat> the uh, there were there were obviously many parts to it, and uh, the parts that you just heard most recently were pretty kind of lofty on the level of ideas of, about existence and whatnot. Reminding me a little bit of what I know of uh, the Madhyamaka. No, that's Macarena. Um, added them to the list at the beginning, not to leave them out. Anyway, um, yes, Madhyamaka, Nagarjuna. There was a lot of talk of, you know, is, is, not, is, is, not, not, is, is. Not really. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to make fun of it, but uh, a lot of questions of, you know, whether whether self is or is not 
eternal and you know all this kind of stuff and uh to, to seems to be navigating toward that space of like don't worry about it like don't don't become fixated on the uh temporality or the immortality of it all or of specific things it's uh it's missing the point and the uh the emphasis throughout <clears throat> at least this volume honestly i haven't read volumes one through seven yet but i will um is on being able to experience and appreciate the level that you're on and to continue to aspire to continue to progress beyond the level that you're at to what comes next lovely train uh noise pollution here uh, very different from the noise pollution we had in delhi for those who remember those episodes anyway um yeah there was the 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 aspirant who wanted a guru who wanted a teacher but he held a secret desire and that invoked a specific type of demon which possessed one of these idiots that think that they're a sage when they're not and uh all the you know 10 different examples of how that can go wrong some of it for i mean for me and i think for anyone who's been active in any kind of not even necessarily buddhist but uh any kind of spiritual groups with uh charismatic leaders some of these might have sound sounded familiar though though these were kind of you know fantastical and magical but still um you know maybe some of the experiences you've had were a little bit fantastical and magical too and uh having to deal with well this person has all this power and all this you know he's able to he, usually he though it it sometimes it's she um is able to do this and that therefore they must have the real stuff they must have the real juice the real message i should be getting it from them and then you know we spend uh a month to 20 years or however long of our lives um trying to get that special sauce from someone who uh maybe isn't worthy to be um to be our teacher or to be to be a vessel of capital T truth if there is such a thing um then there was the section where you know when you get to the level where you where you're crying about a dead mosquito go ahead and cry it's a good state be in that space that doesn't mean you're a guru now and that's kind of like oh wow okay so there's a lot of familiar I, you know not to get into any touchy areas but sometimes you get these very zealous people who um go no further and no no less than being you know vegan nonviolent these might be great things but uh people become very preachy and very kind of holier than thou and kind of act or think like that they're enlightened because they they you know took LSD um at burning man and uh decided to be vegan or something you know um and they yeah a lot of, again a lot of familiar things the uh the one where it talks about self mastery um people who know me from the old days might have uh, been reminded of something similar to what i was reminded of uh hearing that um a little bit reminiscent of um what was his name nico or whatever from lord of illusions shall be known as 
the Puritan. Anyway, um, by the way, the uh, the man floating there, if you didn't know who that was, that's Jeff Bridges as older Kevin Flynn from the uh, Tron 2 or Tron Legacy. Um, You're messing with my Zen thing, man. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't mess with his Zen thing. <laughs> um, a great movie, and you know, I mean, those who know me know that uh, yeah, I love Tron. Well, anyway, um, I think that the text speaks for itself more than uh, more than more than I'm speaking for it. Um, the skandhas, I think, are usually translated as uh, aggregates. Um, it's things like jiso. Uh, I know it in uh, old Japanese, but it's uh, you know consciousness uh, or knowledge, sight, sound. Well, anyway, it's it's the the senses, basically the world of the senses. Uh, comment below if I'm missing some subtlety about that, and I'm sure that they, they, a lot of these things are grounded in the ideas of the original Buddhist teachings behind me, um, but. Yeah, it's a it's a warning to people who are seeking out a guru that these are the kinds of situations that can come up or to people that are on the path that are maybe a little too eager to be the master and uh, the ego is uh, disguising itself as some sort of divine inspiration to be sitting in the, you know, the the chief most seat of, of a temple and uh, whatnot. Um, I personally don't consider myself a teacher, though technically, I guess by, you know, wearing this and reading this, uh, people might learn from what I'm saying, but it's not me that you're learning from. Uh, hopefully it's, it's the, uh, the scriptures themselves. And, um, I'm doing my best to, you know, explain where things fall in so that people can receive things in the, in the context that they exist um, historically and, uh, and as far as, you know, sect-wise or, or lineage-wise or, or whatnot. Uh, but, but yeah, I deeply enjoy this. Watch out for false gurus and watch out for becoming a false guru. And uh, that's, that's, our, uh, that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed those stars. Uh, for those who saw this visually, um, behind Kevin Flynn and uh, all right I will go ahead and do the usual closing to the north and to the south to the east and to the west to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below we send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Until next time.